Marcus Paul, almost a public figure. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Right across Australia. When you on the iHeart Radio and TuneIn Radio apps. The biggest issues. The biggest guess. Marcus Paul in the morning starts now. Well, good morning. Nice to have your company as we get into it for a Monday. Marcus Paul in the morning, the 28th day of March. Uh, don't forget you can interact with us via an email, marcus.paul at starterfm.com.au or, of course, you can comment like so many of you have on the Facebook page again over the weekend. It was wonderful to see so many comments and likes and shares of the content there, that Facebook page, Marcus Paul in the morning. Plenty to talk about. There is, It's a big week, a massive week, uh, so far as politics is concerned. Tomorrow night, the Federal Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, will hand down the budget. Uh, all the goodies, as per usual, have been leaked. That's all the good news, but what about the bad news? Well, one thing is for certain, the Federal Government is yet to basically confirm or deny whether they'll keep the tax offset in place for, for those that earn under a certain amount of money. Uh, The government's being a little coy on it. They said it was always supposed to be a temporary measure. Anyway, I'll give you some details on that and I'll go through some of the goodies that we already know. David Shoebridge will be my special guest on the program this morning, the New South Wales Green. As far as I'm concerned, and I've spoken to David at length over a number of years on my show, he is one of the hardest working MPs in New South Wales and does an extremely fantastic job of keeping the government to account. Half of the staff regarding Gladys Berejiklian and the Independent Commission Against Corruption we would never heard of were it not for the hard work done by David and his team. So anyway, David on the program a little later. Our nurses, well, particularly in New South Wales, they're set to strike again this week, I think Thursdays, the day they're holding another stop work meeting. It w- wouldn't surprise you that there are more surveys out and more data confirming that they've a lot of them have simply had enough. They're burnt out. You know, they've been on the front line for the last couple of years on the pandemic, and as we see numbers again start to surge, many say that they're they're at their wits' end. Anyway, I'll refer to that story a little later in the program as well. Uh, your feedback, and plenty of it still coming through as well, via the social media channels and, of course, via email, marcus.paul at starterfm.com.au. One thing that caught your attention over the weekend was a, a story that I, I put up in relation to parachuting um, MPs into so-called safe seats, even though they don't live there. Christina Keneally into Fairfield and Jeff Lee into Parramatta. Now... <laughs> One of my regulars who I often, you know, get into a blue or two with is uh, a bloke that I call Boomer Jim. Uh, Wealthy, North Shore residents. Uh, I think he's always voted Conservative his entire life. He's had a good old crack at Labor for parachuting Jeff Lee into Parramatta. Uh, And he has a point, though, when he says that Jeff Lee says, oh, well, I have no problem with moving to Parramatta if I'm elected. Well, shouldn't he already be living there now if he's about to run for the joint? And what about Christina Keneally? Uh, Look, I know all parties do it. Um, You know, the LNP have done it and others as well. Uh, But I'd love to get your thoughts on that. And just one other thing as well. How many gadgets have you got connected at home? Well, new surveys reveal 
that average Australian households have up to 20 gadgets connected to the internet at home. That's now. There's been a massive surge in the, the tech space during the pandemic over the last couple of years. I mean, we've seen JB Hi-Fi and other big box retailers that look after tech. Uh, Harvey and Ormonds and the rest of them, they've seen record profits. Anyway, how many at your place? And they reckon the 20 is the average, and over the next couple of years, up to 2025, we could have as many as 35 gadgets connected to the internet at home. 35! And they're not just, you know, the usual things like your smartphones and smart televisions and whatever. I mean, doorbells, fridges, other appliances are all becoming high-tech and uh, using smart technology, so they need to be connected to the internet. I'll talk about that and much, much more on this Monday morning. Some great music on the way. We'll keep you up to date with the latest news. Of course, thanks to the team at Air News. And your feedback is always more than welcome. Please let us know how we're going. Marcus.Paul at starterfm.com.au and, of course, on the Facebook page. Let's get into it. Monday, nice to have your company. Okay, welcome back. Monday morning, tomorrow is a big day. The federal budget for 22-23 will be handed down by the federal treasurer, Josh Frydenberg. As we know, the budget sets out the government's revenue and expenditure plans for the nation, and we get to have a, a little squeeze at the books. Now, the federal government has been in there for quite some time, long enough to make significant changes economically and to, I guess... Look out for people on lower incomes. That hasn't happened, according to the opposition leader, Anthony Albanese, who over the weekend had much to say about it. But this budget needs a plan for productivity. It needs a plan to grow the economy. It needs a plan to have an economy that works for people, not the other way around. And after almost a decade in office, it is beyond belief that this government could stand hand on heart and say they care about the cost of living when they themselves said that low wages were a key feature of their economic architecture. Yep, there's Albo over the weekend. Low income earners, predominantly young Australians, may well be the biggest losers in tomorrow night's budget as the government avoids a firm answer on whether tax offsets will be extended. Uncertainty surrounding the low and middle income tax offset is cause for concern among young people who are overwhelmingly represented in the lower tax brackets. The Treasurer Josh Frydenberg over the weekend knocked back questions on whether the tax offset will be extended again in this year's budget, but he made it clear that it was never a, quote, permanent solution. Now, the offset, of course, doubled in last year's budget and was due to expire in June, It offered an offset of up to $1,080 for Australians earning less than 126 grand a year. Now, Richard Dennis, chief economist at the Australia Institute over the weekend, said that's a lot of money. And there's a lot of young people that are struggling to save up for a house, struggling to pay the rent and struggling with high petrol prices. The good doctor, Dr Dennis, expressed fears that younger Australians may well be overlooked in the upcoming budget. He said politicians of all stripes are good at saying that everyone is their priority. Come budget time, though, you can tell to the sense who their priorities are because it's who gets the money and who doesn't. Meanwhile, Shadow Treasurer Jim Chalmers was on the ABC Insiders program over the weekend. 
He said that the Labor opposition has been consistently supportive of tax cuts for lower income earners, and this is not about to change heading into the election. He said, we've made it clear for quite some time that our preference for cost of living relief is that it be directed to those who need it most. Meanwhile, the federal government is moving toward the third phase of its plan to reshape the tax bracket system. The plan is to widen the lower income bracket to allow people earning from $120,000 up to two hundred grand to pay less tax. When the government reaches stage three in the 24-25 financial year, people in this bracket will get a tax cut of up to $9,000 a year. Well, that sounds good, but while people earning as low as 45 grand annually, overwhelmingly represented by younger Australians, well, they'll end up winding pay, wind up paying the same tax as those on four times their wage. If you'd like to comment, marcus.paul at starterfm.com.au or, or, of course, on our Facebook page. Tuesday morning with Marcus Paul here. Commuters and families across Greater Sydney can travel for free on all public transport for 12 consecutive days over the Easter school holidays. That's after the major disruptions from flood and industrial action over the past couple of months. Now, the free travel will start at 4am on April 14, Holy Thursday, and end just before 4am on April 26. That's the day after Anzac Day. The free travel will give Sydney some relief after rain, shutdowns and COVID restrictions, according to Transport Minister David Elliott. Two commuters affected by recent disruptions, I want to say a heartfelt thank you for your patience, Mr Elliott said over the weekends. Well, he did promise that he'd try and put a stop not only to the industrial action, but give commuters some relief, so well done to him. The 12 free days will cover travel on trains, buses, light rail and ferries. It comes after the rail, tram and bus union called for fair free Fridays until June. There we go. All right, another story that caught my attention over the weekend. The family of an eight-month-old baby, they are set to sue the state over claims he was illegally strip-searched by a female police officer while on the way to visit his father in jail. Look, I understand how corrective services might get a little suspicious and perhaps because... Look, let's be honest, people have used infants, babies, to smuggle contraband into our jails. There's no doubt about that. It's occurred on numerous occasions. So I guess they do need to check. Anyway, the infant boy was allegedly undressed and taken out of his nappy by a female police officer who was accused of then lifting and spreading the baby's legs and inspecting his naked body. That's according to a statement of claim filed in Port Macquarie District Court. I think that's going a bit too far, don't you? Lifting and spreading the baby's naked legs, inspecting his naked body. The alleged incident took place outside Mid North Coast Correctional Centre near Kempsey on September the 2nd, back in 2018, when police and New South Wales Corrective Services were conducting an operation to search people for illegal contraband who were visiting the jail. He is now the second child to save their fa- or to have rather their family sue the state over being strip-searched by a female officer during the operation. A 16-month-old boy, uh, that case, was settled out of court. Now, it's yet to be established 
if it was the same female officer involved in both incidents. There is also no suggestion that the boy or his parents were smuggling contraband into jail. Now, according to the eight-month-old boy's statement of claim, police stopped his mother's car just after 8.30 in the morning and both were directed into a bus after being examined by a sniffer dog. Inside the bus, the mother and baby were both allegedly strip-searched. The baby's statement of claim said the officer removed his clothes and nappy before lifting and spreading his legs. The police officer inspected the baby's naked body, including his genitals and buttocks area, the document said. The legal action was launched under his mother's tutelage in the Port Macquarie District Court, which his claims worth between 75 grand up to 750 grand. The boy's lawyers, Todd Scott and Dean Woodbury, said the baby's family is suing for battery and unlawful detention. Mr Scott told media over the weekend New South Wales laws clearly state that a child under 10 cannot be strip-searched. Well, if if that's what the law says... Gee, I don't know. See, this is where it gets difficult, doesn't it? Because there's no doubt, and I know, I've heard of incidents uh, from police officers, mates of mine in the job, and also those that have worked for Serco and other correctional officers that... Quite often, some of these parents, in order to smuggle contraband, including drugs and all the rest of it, you know, they they use babies to do it. Sorry, they do. Um, They'll smuggle drugs inside a nappy and elsewhere. It's horrific. It's awful. So I understand why corrections might have, you know, wanted to ensure that this kind of practice stopped. But as I say, New South Wales laws clearly state that a child under 10 cannot be strip searched. Yet here we have an eight-month-old being strip-searched by a police officer of the opposite sex. It is a disgraceful violation of the rights of a baby who is completely incapable of defending themselves. Look, the family is also claiming exemplary damages by claiming that the police officer acted outrageously and disgracefully by strip-searching a baby while showing a flagrant disregard for the law and also a disregard for the child's rights. What do you think of this? This was far worsened as the female officer knew the plaintiff was a male baby and a vulnerable person completely incapable of defending himself or asserting his rights. The state, on behalf of the police, has yet to file a defence in the case under New South Wales laws, of course. It is illegal for police to strip search a child under the age of 10. Strip searches must also be conducted by the same sex. I have a feeling this family may well find themselves the recipients of a payout from New South Wales taxpayers. If you care to comment, marcus.paul at starterfm.com.au or on our Facebook page. This is Democracy Manifest. Welcome back. Well, I was saddened to find this out over the weekend. I thought they would have ended up getting married. But former Prime Minister Julia Gillard has put an end to speculation around her long-term relationship with, quote, first bloke Tim Matheson, with the former Prime Minister confirming she's quietly split with the former first bloke and hairdresser Tim. Oh, that's a shame. Ms Gillard, who served, of course, as Australia's first female Prime Minister and whose relationship with the former hairdresser sparked intense media scrutiny, 
which was ridiculous and also included a television comedy, has confirmed that the couple have quietly gone their separate ways. After media commentators repeatedly noted Mr Matheson's absence from her side at public events, Miss Gillard told the Adelaide Advertiser that the pair split more than a year ago after a decade and a half together. I thought they made a good couple. The former first couple had not been in the same city for over 12 months, with Julia Gillard splitting her time between Adelaide and the United Kingdom, where she is chairing the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College, and Mr Matheson living in country Victoria, of course. Now, in her 2014 autobiography, My Story, Miss Gillard wrote of their 2004 introduction at the Melbourne-based hair salon where Mr Matheson was working full-time. Every four or five weeks on a Sunday morning, I used to go in and work my way through the newspapers as my hair was done. Tim and I got talking about politics. Initially, he thought I was a state member of parliament. We had later run into each other on a tram and had a chat. Now, Mr Matheson recalled during a 2011 60 Minutes interview that the first time he saw her, I thought, what a wonderful lady. It wasn't until 2006, though, that they struck up an official relationship after arranging to catch up for lunch during the politically quiet time of the Melbourne Commonwealth Games. The couple made history, of course, during Miss Gillard's three years as Prime Minister, as the first unmarried couple to live at the Lodge, moving in together in 2010, and Mr Matheson, a divorced father of three as Australia's first bloke, taking on responsibilities traditionally filled by political wives. While they challenged the nation's view at the time of traditional gender roles in a relationship, the pair were also the subject of intense, and I think very unfair, constant media scrutiny. And I recall, and this was reported over the weekend of that moronic Perth radio shock jock, Howard Sattler. He was suspended from his drive program on Station 6PR when back in 2013, he asked Miss Gillard if her partner was gay while testing some myths, rumours, snide jokes and innuendos she'd been on the receiving end of. Uh, she, then, uh, she asked the then MP, you can confirm that he's not homosexual? Oh, Howard, don't be ridiculous. Of course not, she responded. But you're in a heterosexual relationship. That's all I'm asking, he pressed. I mean, imagine asking the Prime Minister of Australia a question like that. Anyway, she kept the dignity as she always did by saying, Howard, let me just bring you back to earth. You and I have just talked about me and Tim living in the lodge. We live there together as a couple. You know that. Yes, on the internet, there are lots of what I've referred to in the past as nut jobs, people who peddle and circulate vile and offensive things. And she was right. Whether they'd ever get married was also a topic the couple were frequently interrogated over. And while Mr Matheson said multiple times he'd like to ask her, both said they weren't in any rush. Now, back in 2011, he told the Adelaide Advertiser at the moment, I'm really quite happy with our relationship the way it is. Like Julia, I don't think we need to be cemented in any other way. We're just happy with the way we are. But I would hope if I did ask her that of course she would say, yes, absolutely, it's a natural thing. Well, unfortunately, we'll never know because he didn't and they have split and they've been apart for almost a year now, we're told, which is a shame. I wish them both every happiness. Julia Gillard confirming that she quietly split with former first bloke Tim Matheson over the weekend.
Okay, welcome back on this Monday. Very soon, some more details on what we know so far in relation to the federal budgets uh, due to be handed down tomorrow night by the federal treasurer, Josh Frydenberg. But I came across this while I was scrolling through social media over the weekend, and I posed the question to which many of you uh, kindly answered on the page, what do you make of political parties parachuting a candidate into an electorate that they don't actually live in? Look, all parties are guilty of it. I was disappointed, I have to say, in Christina Keneally being parachuted into Fairfield. I suspect Christina probably wouldn't have even known where Fairfield was without the the help of Google Maps. But anyway, my mate Boomer Jim, who I suspect has never voted for anybody but a conservative, he's wealthy, lives on the northern beaches and and loves having a crack at us so-called lefties. Anyway, he wrote over the weekend, there's something seriously off and tacky about this. In the true sense, an eastern suburbs high-flying Learjet elite of the limousine left being imposed on Parramatta by the supposed working man's party, who has, as Jeff Lee points out, indicated his willingness to move to Parramatta if he wins, which, to me, says basically that he doesn't want to live there unless there's something in it for him. He would have chosen to live in Parramatta if he was truly passionate about the area and its constituents. Okay, to which uh, a lot of people replied on social media on our Marcus Paul in the Morning Facebook page. Anthony says, yes, Marcus, I don't like it. Michael Feenley from the Libs, after many attempts at state and federal in the eastern suburbs, is going for Dobell. A wealthy cardiologist from Ramwick has clinics in Bondi Junction and he just bought a house on the Central Coast. Uh, The media missed this one. All right, ads, well, the article, according to ads, has been written by a Liberal MP, the current Liberal government being the most corrupt in the history of New South Wales. He goes on to say that, you know, uh, the Liberals are a little hypocritical having somebody write this piece on Jeff Lee, considering they've done the same thing themselves. Uh, Chris says, Marcus, the Feds aren't, quote, local, unquote, anyway. It sounds like they've been pretty keen to get this guy in, so he'll probably end up a front bencher if they win. So that can only be good for the electorates. Uh, Trish says, not sure. These decisions aren't always black and white. I'm more pro-local candidates, but it depends on many factors. If I'd be comfortable with a fly-in for my electorate... All right, Warren says, On the contrary, Marcus, reading about this guy, I reckon he'd be a huge asset to Labor compared with just putting in a union nuffy because he or she happens to live closer. Uh, Terry says he'd probably be out of touch with the electorate living in a $16 million mansion in a posh part of town. And on they go. Look, most of you suggest that it doesn't matter. I mean, Judy says Tony Abbott, Marcus, did this with Andrew Hastie, dropping him into the WA seat of Canning, while he and his family still lived in Melbourne. Precedents having been set, I guess it's fair enough for Parramatta. Yeah, uh, look, I know what happens, uh, and, and, and perhaps the argument for this could be that, say, somebody like a Christina Keneally, if she wins in Fairfield, well, she may well be able to advocate much better than a local unknown or, or a person without a profile could and we may see some better services coming to these areas. Jeff Lee, perhaps in Parramatta, and of course in Fairfield from Christina Keneally, should they win government. Anyway, there's still plenty of time for you to comment on the Facebook page. How do you feel 
about political parties parachuting a candidate into an electorate they don't actually live in. Let me know your thoughts. You can send me an email if you like, marcus.paul at starterfm.com.au or comment on the Facebook page. Okay, welcome back. Now, very soon, I've been looking forward to this. I'm going to catch up with the Greens' David Shoebridge. David's been a regular on Marcus Paul in the Morning for many years at the old joint, and for the first time, I'll get to chat with him about what's been making news in New South Wales parliaments uh, for the first time on the Prawncast and, of course, on the program on Starter FM, and plenty to discuss as well, so that's on the way. Right now, though... I want your attention, all you business owners. It's time to ask yourself a few important questions. As a business owner, you often start with a vision of what your business will allow you to achieve in your personal life. The day-to-day realities of running your business takes over and you sometimes lose track of how your working life should be aligned with achieving your personal vision of success. So we want you to ask yourself the following questions. Are you ready to take your business to an entirely new level? Who's in control, you or your business? How are you at balancing your business and personal lives? Do you need help seeing the opportunities available to you? Do you feel like you're fighting fires all alone? And where do you turn for the truth about your business? Well, to help answer these and many other important questions, you need the expert advice available from the team at the Alternative Board. You'll hear me talking more about these guys over the coming weeks. The Alternative Board helps forward-thinking business owners increase profitability and improve their lives by leveraging local business advisory boards, private business coaching, and proprietary strategic services. You really must speak to them today. So what are you waiting for? Call Greg and the team at the Alternative Board to learn more about their invitation-only membership model and how it may be able to help you with your business. So contact and connect today. It's your business, so why are you waiting? The Alternative Board is exactly what your business needs now. Call Greg Urand for all the details on 0400-858-190. That's 0400-858-190. The Alternative Board, helping your business be all it can be. And as we say always, please support the businesses that support us here at Marcus Paul in the Morning. Well, as you would know if you live on the eastern seaboard of Australia, the rain just hasn't stopped. Uh, It hasn't been as bad over the last few days as what we've seen in recent weeks. But still, tax breaks, I am led to believe, and JobKeeper for Flood Victims, a North Coast tourism campaign, and payments to SES branches. They're among the measures that New South Wales Labor is calling for as the state faces another week of rain. Labor leader Chris Minns outlined his 10-point plan for flood recovery, which he wants the government to adopt. He said yesterday it is clear to the families and businesses of the flood-impacted areas that both the federal and New South Wales state governments were too slow to act in their immediate response. And now they have been too slow in their support. 
The plan calls on the government to waive all state and local government fees for flood victims and impacted businesses. Also to waive or defer payroll tax for flood impacted businesses and to encourage tourists with a, quote, spend with us, unquote, campaign for the north coast of New South Wales. Now, Mr Minns said he also wants the state government to write to their federal counterparts to request the reinstating of JobKeeper in flood-impacted areas. On top of business support, New South Wales Labor are calling on stamp duty to be waived for victims who need to buy new land or homes, even if they relocate elsewhere. The list of demands also includes raising the structural repairs grants to $50,000 and expanding the payment to include retrofitting homes to be more flood resilient or putting the grant towards purchasing a new home. Now, Chris Min said yesterday that he was calling on the government to establish a task force of case managers to help families and businesses with their insurance claims and for the government to provide cash flow assistance for insurance access. Now, the opposition leader said the government should also consider buying back properties in flood-prone areas. He was in Lismore yesterday announcing the plan. If you care to comment or leave me a message about that, marcus.paul at starterfm.com.au. Meanwhile, Australia's second largest aged care provider is calling for more federal funding in the budgets tomorrow as it can be revealed its ambitious plans to expand into China have spectacularly collapsed. Bolton Clark, a not-for-profit, has been called upon to provide greater transparency over its finances, including a for-profit deal with a Chinese real estate firm. It comes as Bolton Clark also acquired two other Australian care providers in the last few months, including Allity in a $700 million deal, boosting its portfolio to 70 aged care homes, 36 retirement villages with 130,600 clients and 10,000 staff. Now, it received $356.5 million or 68% of its income in federal government subsidies. It's not bad, is it? while Queensland's Labor government tried to help its failed push into China. Jeez, what do you make of that? Marcus Paul in the morning. Nice to have your company on this Monday. David Shoebridge, someone who I caught up with regularly on the the old program, Marcus Paul in the morning, but I'm happy to say he's back. David, nice to talk to you, mate. Yeah, and you, Marcus. Uh, Lovely to hear your voice. Yeah, uh, there's lots going on. I, I thought, just out of interest's sake, we'd start with what's going up there in the Hornsby Shire Council. We know it's a, a blue-blood Liberal council. Uh, Philip Ruddick is there as the mayor, uh, and I uh, I couldn't help but have a, a little chuckle uh, when he upped the ante on locals who thought they might perhaps use the property as a little bit of a, a political outlet. Uh, some people have been uh, plastering their bins up there in the Hornsby Shire Council with anti-Scott Morrison stickers, <laughs> but they shouldn't be apparently. Yeah, I look, I talk about precious. I mean, I thought the coalition was, you know, running this champions of free speech kind of thing. You know, that's what they pretend to be all about. But, you know, we've got the former immigration minister up there, Philip Ruddock, the mayor of Hornsby, um, getting deeply offended about people putting messages on their bins. Um, I don't know if he's met many Garbos. You know, I've I've met plenty of the Garbos out here. Um, You know, I was on the council before. 
I found them some of the most robust people you're ever ever likely to meet. You know, they'll, they'll empty a bin full of dead rats. I don't think they're going to be overly fussed about having a sticker on their bin. But it uh, really, really got up uh, Philip Ruddock's nose and the coalition's nose and, and threatening to not empty with someone's recycling or rubbish because they, they don't like the sticker. I thought that was... Um, a kind of new low in municipal politics. Do they have a point, though, um, playing devil's advocate, do they have a point? Um, should we allow uh, political advertising, stroke propaganda, whatever you want to call it, on, uh, you know, so-called public property? I mean, Philip Ruddick made the point that, you know, what's next, bus stops and all sorts of other uh, public property. Yeah, well, I think a bin slightly different to that. Like it's yeah. normally stored on your in your place. You know, it's kind of your bin. Let's be clear about it. And um, and and in fact, also bin stickers serve a useful purpose. I, I'll, I'll be honest. I'm going to declare a conflict of interest, Marcus, mm-hmm. because forever I have had a um, a save big save TAFE where I support public TAFE sticker on my recycling bin. I think I've got a um, I think I've got tax the rich on my um, on my on my you know my standard garbage bin, sure. and I'm pretty sure I've got a treaty now on my recycling bin. And I, one of the reasons I stick them on my bin, apart from supporting all of those things, um, is I can tell my bin apart from the neighbours when there's a mess of bins in the backyard. It's actually really bloody useful. Um, um, you know, yeah. I think it's you know I'm very happy to send a message. You know, for those five hours, mostly in the dark, when they're sitting <laughs> on the street, but it's actually. One of the main reasons I do it is so I can tell my bin from my neighbours. You know, we've got a, we've got a rear lane. There's a mess of bins, and um, you can pluck them, pluck them, um, pluck them off the street, and stick them back nice and quick. All right. Well, um, I mean, it's not the first. Yeah, I think time the world will survive too, Marcus. Yeah. I think the world will survive some stickers on bins. I don't think the system's going to collapse. I reckon it'll be all right. Yeah. Well, like I say, I think this uh, has been going on forever and a day, and uh, and you know, uh, people have been sticking signs on their bins um, with public messages. Uh, not political messages saying, you know, you're in a 50K zone, slow down or, or yeah, whatever. So yeah. it's not the or first time Or just sticking, you know, 19B. They paint 19B <laughs> on their thing. You know, I didn't think you had to seek permission for this sort of stuff. And um, I, I think it's, um, it's 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 beyond precious what that uh, Liberal-led council is doing up there. I reckon they should um, – I think there's plenty of stuff to actually focus on uh, yeah. and there's plenty of stuff in Hornsby Council to focus on, not, not stickers on bits. When I was born, David, one of the first things my old man did, uh, rest his soul, was uh, book me in to St Aloysius at Milson's Point in Sydney. That's where he went. That's where my grandfather yep. went, my uncle's. Uh, I didn't end up going because I ended up being a Westie uh, and it was too far to get on a train at Penrith and go to Milson's Point every day. But I understand that school, along with uh, a couple of others, in fact, many private schools, 130 in total, have been overfunded by $120 million, according to research. Yeah, and and, and St Aloysius, you know, you can pick St Aloysius out. You could pick up pick out Loretto, um, Kirribilli, you could pick a bunch out. But St mm. Aloysius, from my memory, was getting $4.5 million more than they're entitled to under the formula that sets, I think it's called the school resourcing standard where you work out how many kids you've got, um, you work out what the basic needs are for that school, and then you work out how much they're to be funded by state and federal governments. And that school, primarily because of a massive surge in in public, in, in Commonwealth funding, was getting like $4.5 million more than they should have. And meanwhile, you know, you've got public schools that still can't afford to air condition their classrooms. And, you know, I think um, St. Aloysius has got performing arts theatre, it's got pool, it's oh, yeah. got, you know... 
Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's got bazillions of um, facilities and it's getting an extra four and a half million dollars. Imagine what four and a half million dollars could do at, you know, a, a primary school out in Western Sydney. It'd turn it into a bloody palace. Why are taxpayers funding private schools anyway? I've always been dead set against this. I've never quite understood. I don't, I don't know what the uh, the figure is to send a child to, oh, let's not just pick on Alos, but to, to Knox or to any of these, uh, you know, yeah. exclusive private schools. Scots. You know, you know, Kambala, Ascom, you know. Yeah. Well, we're talking most of those northward of 30 grand a year um, to send mm. a kid to those schools. And, um, look, I, 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 we, we kind of think it's normal in Australia, but you talk to someone from the United States, for example, you know, home of free markets, home of private schools or something, yeah. and you say, and they, they, they hear that the Australian government funds private schools and they cannot believe it because not a single dollar of US taxpayers' money goes on private schools. It all goes on public schools. And they, they are astounded that, um, that, that Australian governments are willing to, to fund, you know, elite private schools. And, and same in the UK. I mean, there's a tiny amount of funding that goes to um, what are, their private schools are called public schools over there. But they, they get almost zero dollars from the from – the, from their government and yeah. almost entirely rely on private funds. And, and and when you tell them that, you know, the Commonwealth government here gives more money to private schools than it does to public schools, like their head just explodes. <laughs> and, oh, and, I can and understand we should that. be offended as well. We should be offended as well. I mean, and then and what's what's fascinating, well, fascinating and evil and wrong, is that the um the the Commonwealth doesn't give any capital funding to to um to to public schools yes so the commonwealth provides no money for new classrooms for new halls for, for facilities for for any public school anywhere across the country and yet it provides billions and billions of dollars for capital funding um for private schools and, and what it says is well the states can deal with public schools you know that can be the state's problem and of course the states have nowhere near the kind of resource capacity that the commonwealth government has and that means we get things like what we saw and, yeah. and and one of the reasons they're overfunded is because um, the, 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 the Commonwealth struck a deal with Gonski funding and the Gonski funding, the deal was that, okay, well, over the next like 400 years, we will slowly drag up public school funding. So I think by 2030 or something, public schools are meant to get about 95% of their resource standard. But the, the contra on that was mm. that private schools, those that were being grossly overfunded, got to keep their extra funding until inflation slowly eroded it down over time and, um, and it's just not happened. Well, but- uh, the point you made at the start of that was, uh, and, and this is what will frustrate many, particularly in, in Sydney or in you know the, uh, the regional areas of the state, there are many schools still sweltering in summer conditions without, without air conditioning. And, you know, when you hear stories of uh, Loretta Curabilli or Knox or whoever getting, you know, multi-million dollar grants from uh, the federal government, you do scratch your head as to wonder where the priorities are. Speaking of schools, uh, well, speaking of uh, curability or Loretta, you were just around the corner the other day with a bunch of school students. Uh, climate change. I haven't heard a lot I mentioned. Was. I haven't heard a lot mentioned about it as we head to the uh, the federal poll, which uh, probably, you know, we'll have an announcement of a date, I think, after the federal budget this week, David. But Climate change protesters, uh, they've been, uh, I guess, causing some issues around Port Botany with the Blockade Australia mob. But let's deal with the kids first. Um, The New South Wales Education Minister, Sarah Mitchell, um, despite (laughs) stern words of it's a school day, stay home, there were still many out protesting on Thursday. 
Um, yeah, well, look, I, I think it was I think it was Friday. I beg your pardon, my, Friday. The, um, yes, yep, yep. Yeah, yeah, but the um, um, yeah, there were there were I think I would have said about two thousand um, protesters outside Kirribilli House, you know, which is where the the prime minister um, the prime minister's digs on the north yeah, side of, yeah. um, of of Sydney Harbour. I didn't check his bins. Now I think about <laughs> it. Next time I'm going to have a good look at his bins. But uh, <laughs> the um, but the um, we're outside his house, and yeah. there there would have been about two thousand, um, um, mostly almost all students, not entirely students, mm. um, school kids coming out and saying they want politics to take climate change seriously because they've got you know eighty ninety years on this planet, and yeah. at the rate we're going on climate change, it's going to be bloody bloody hard planet to live on when they get 30, 40, 50 years of age. And it's already getting tough. You know, we've seen the we've seen those fire bombs in the black summer bushfires and, the, the you know, the appalling drought. And that was all the science says those extremes were climate driven. And then we've had the the rain bombs, you know, that, that appalling storm that sat on Lismore day after day after day and literally was like a river in the sky. Um, everybody, all, all, the, all the scientists say that, kind of extreme of weather event is climate driven and the kids are saying you know these one in 100 year events these one in 500 year events they're happening every year and they just keep coming back and back and back and they want politics to do something about it and politics is not and you know if they lose a day of school to save their future hmm that seems a pretty pretty good calculus in my mind got your entire future at stake well, you Take say you say in the uh, the face of global wars and human rights abuses, and with our own communities reeling from catastrophic floods made worse by climate change, the right to demand action on climate and to defend human rights must be protected. Uh, you're referring, of course, to and just on the same uh, topic of climate change, the blockade Australia activists. I spoke to a couple of them when they blockaded the uh, the, the steelworks up there in Newcastle and the coal trains, but they've relocated now to Sydney. Uh, we had, I think, three or four days in a row uh, where these young people uh, set up their makeshift poles and, and abseiled and did what they did to uh, cause some traffic chaos. Now, the, fe- the state government um, has come down hard. We've seen, um, you know, reports of a couple of, uh, of Germans that are going to be apparently uh, have their visas ripped up. They'll be deported. Uh, we've got $22,000 fines and all the rest of it being announced and uh, a pretty fed-up police minister and transport minister in, uh, and uh, I don't know, for, for some reason the media always seem to go to, <laughs> to David on this. Uh, what, what do you make of it? Look, there is a right to protest, Um I, I do worry sometimes, and I was honest with the uh, with the, the young people when I spoke to them on air last year. Uh, is there not another way to do this, or are they are they at a point now where this is the only way of getting their message across? Well, I think if if politicians listen to the sense of um, exasperation and powerlessness and um, genuine anxiety um, about about young people have about their future, and mm. then said, actually, we're going to meaningfully respond to it. We, we hear what you say. We know how worried you are. We're worried too. Here is our serious response to climate. This would not be happening. But people get a sense that the likes of Scott Morrison, you know, he's a, he's a bloke who brought a lump of coal into Parliament yeah. and waves it around and said, don't be afraid, don't be frightened, it can't hurt you. Well, you know, tell that to the people of Lismore. Tell that mm. to the people of Lismore that it's not going to hurt them. Bloody well hurt Lismore. And, and, and young people are seeing 
that these politicians are happy to just pump out as much coal and gas out of the ground as they possibly can, keep pumping it out for the next few decades, and they know that that is just going to create climate catastrophe for young people going forward, and they feel powerless, they feel exasperated, and and then um, they 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 they. they they, they resort to protests, yeah. and in this case, quite disruptive protests. Now, is that the best way of getting the message across? I don't know. I didn't do it. I wasn't organising it. I think, it, you know, the disruption is really – it's a really hard way of protesting. But am I going to condemn them for acting like that in the face of all that? I bloody well won't. And, and, and there are laws already in place to get people off roads. You know, if you're disrupting a road, the police already have the power to remove somebody from the road, to remove somebody who's creating a nuisance. None of this – you know, posturing and anger from the like of David Elliott or the police minister, none of that has given the police any more powers than they had the day before. The police already have the powers to pe- pull people off a road, pull people off a railway track and, yeah. you know, get things back to order. And, you know, uh, I, and also I, I just I think back about those protests that shut down roads and shut down cities during the lockdown, you know, the really angry anti-vax protests That's that were right. more disruptive, that were really angry that saw actual push and shove with police, where was David Elliott's anger there? Where was the transport minister's anger there? It, it, this is, at the core of this, is they're angry about the politics of it. It's, it's not the disruption. They're angry about the politics. Well, I mean, many say, and you and I concur on this, the climate crisis is the greatest threat to Australia's future and security. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And, you know, um, I, I'm hoping we will see a, a change in the coming month uh, at a federal level and we'll start to take this stuff a little more seriously. David? Yeah, well, I mean... Uh Unless you've got, unless, unless somebody's got another planet that they've got in mind that yeah. we can all just decamp to, um, <laughs> I reckon we should take care of this one. That, that's, I think, pretty fundamental. All right, mate. It's great to chat with you. Uh, let's do it a little more often. Um, it's uh, it's good uh, here on Starter FM. Uh, we've got a little bit more time, you know, less commercials, all the rest of it, and we can uh, you know nut out some of the issues that I think uh, a lot of my followers and listeners. Uh, would love to hear your uh, your your take on uh, as I as I always say, and I know you you're a very humble man, but uh, you you are one of the hardest working MPs in New South Wales. If it wasn't for for your work, uh, your discovery, your uh, you know tenacity, um, you know we wouldn't have had things like uh, the ICAC hearings into a former premier and many other things. Uh, that uh, often the mainstream don't seem to want to be able to touch for whatever reasons. David, it's always a pleasure talking to you, mate. Yeah, you too, Marcus, and you take care of yourself. Catch up soon. Cheers. Bye. All right, welcome back. Well, one thing I have spoken about at length during the past couple of years is the effect the pandemic's had on nurses, frontline workers, those at the coalface, but in particular, nurses. And over the weekend, I read some more articles that really prove COVID has crushed them. That's right. COVID has crushed our nurses. The pandemic has left healthcare workers with dangerous levels of depression, anxiety, sleep problems and stress. A review of some 14 separate studies on the mental health impact of the pandemic on healthcare workers published by the New South Wales COVID-19 Critical Intelligence Unit found the risk of depression ranged from 12% to nearly 55% and anxiety 23% to around 67%. Now, these findings come as nurses and midwives plan to walk off the job for 24 hours on Thursday. Why? 
Well, as usual, they're protesting the ongoing staffing crisis inside public hospitals. That's according to the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association. The review found healthcare workers fear for their own and others' physical safety during infection. They worry about inadequate personal protective equipment and resourcing, and they struggle with high workloads and long shifts. And as a result, many are leaving the profession. Another study of some 1,000 nurses by the Health Professionals Bank and Australian College of Nursing showed that after two years of COVID-19, almost 70% reported experiencing fatigue and burnout, while a quarter experienced mental health or distress. It's a worry, isn't it? More than a third wanted greater mental health support. Hayley Chander, well, she was quoted in one of the uh, articles I read over the weekend. She's 26 years of age. She's from the Sutherland Shire of Sydney. And she said she's had enough. After four years, two working on the front line of the pandemic, she's gone. She said, and I quote, emotional, physical and mental burnout is pretty evident. We work longer hours, longer shifts, back to back. It catches up with you and it has burnt me out. So I've decided to change professions. Now, while still working as a casual nurse, she is now studying law. And she's not the only one. She's not alone in leaving. There are plenty of others. The evidence points to it. The New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association reported a surge in retirements last year of 500 more than the previous five years. Miss Chandler says, I saw it in my colleagues as well as in myself. Some people would just turn up for handover and burst into tears. The COVID wards were at another level. She said, normally I'd see two or three patients on oxygen, but on the COVID ward, every single patient was on it and their management required more routine observation and more time and concentration. She said the phones were constantly ringing from families wanting updates. You don't want to rush and do things properly, but on a 20 metre long ward, I could easily do up to 16 kilometres a day chasing things up. Wow. Another Sydney nurse who did not want to be named because he was still employed said he could no longer work full time and was moving into teaching. He said, and I quote, in the past two years, so many have left because they couldn't do it anymore. I'm completely burnt out. I don't know a nurse who isn't burnt out. It's been the hardest two years of my life. Nursing is already hard enough. But the stress and lack of support I'd say we are leaving in record numbers. Well, in rural and regional areas, hospitals are running, quote, on overtime and the grace of nurses staying back who are tired and burnt out. That's according to many nurses from the New South Wales Nursing and Midwives Association. Yeah, it certainly has been tough. And I've heard from Helen Dalton and other MPs in regional New South Wales saying that, well, in some of the regions let alone the major metropolitan areas of Sydney, Wollongong, Newcastle, but in particular in the regions, as I just mentioned, you know, they're really doing it tough. Really, really are. I don't know uh, what the government can do. Obviously, it's pretty easy to provide extra PPE, but what about providing some more mental health support? It shouldn't be that hard. Surely not. Marcus Paul in the morning on this Monday. Nice to have your company. 
Monday morning, welcome back. Marcus Paul in the morning on Starter FM, the iHeart Radio, TuneIn Radio, and of course our Prawncast, which drops uh, around midday each day, sometimes earlier, sometimes later. Depends on how we're travelling. How are you on this Monday? Let's talk a little bit more about the federal budget, shall we? Well, over the weekend, of course, Scott Morrison pledged to spend $365-odd million more subsidising the wages of 35,000 new apprentices as a part of this year's budget, which is handed down tomorrow night by Josh Frydenberg. The plan to extend the successful Boosting Apprenticeship Commencements and Completing Apprenticeship Commencements program, which has already helped 350,000 young people join the workforce, comes as vocational training is shaping up as a key battleground in this year's election. ScoMo said the government was boosting the pipeline of workers Australia will need for a stronger economy and a stronger future. He said yesterday, these programs deliver certainty for business so they can go and hire another apprentice chef, another apprentice hairdresser, another apprentice plumber. It's about getting Australians skilled and into jobs right now, according to the Prime Minister. He said he'd met trade apprentices across the country supported by these programs and he wants to help even more Australians take advantage of the skills and jobs that come with learning a trade. Trades training shores up our skills pipeline, gets people into work, drives down unemployment and gives businesses the confidence to keep on hiring. Now, post-secondary education will feature prominently in this year's election after Labor earlier this year in January, in fact, promised to spend $1.2 billion on 65,000 new university and TAFE places. Under the Boosting Apprenticeship Commencement Scheme, in which 73,000 businesses have access, employers are given 12 months of wage subsidy support for apprentices. This whole thing was due to end on March the 31st, so later this week, but it will now be extended till the end of the financial year, at which point the apprentices will then be eligible for extended support through the completing apprenticeship commencements wage subsidy for the final two years of their apprenticeship. Now, ScoMo said learning a trade doesn't just give you skills for a job, it gives you the skills and opportunities for your future. Well, that's true. Out of a group of students studying trades I met last week, more than half told me they were planning to one day open their own business and they know they can do that because they're learning skills that people need. Now, Treasurer Josh Frydenberg said support for the skills sector would help lock in Australia's economic recovery by delivering opportunities for apprentices and and certainty for business. He said over the weekend, the 2022-23 budget will outline the government's long-term economic plan to create more jobs Right now, according to the Treasurer, there are more than 350,000 apprentices and trainees in training, and a record 220,000 of these are trade apprentices. These investments are about making those numbers go even higher through the government's plan to skill young Australians. There are 120,000 more young Australians in work compared to under previous Labor governments. All right, well... That's from the government over the weekend. But what do we know so far in relation to what we can expect tomorrow night to be handed down in the budget? Prime Minister Scott Morrison, over the weekend, announced Lifeline Australia will get more than $52 million in funding over four years. 
so that will help with mental health. Childcare. Subsidy changes have been brought forward from July the 1st to March the 7th. The $1.7 billion program means an expected 250,000 families will be $2,200 a year better off. An additional $40 million in funding over the next four years will give children access to 15 hours of preschool a week. Well, we've heard, of course, at great length about the increase in defence spending, $875 million in 234 defence projects across the country, $10 billion over two decades for an East Coast submarine base in either Queensland or New South Wales, and, of course, $38 billion investments uh, to the year of 2040 to recruit 18,500 new Defence Force members. All right, well, education, skills and technology. $65 million has been set aside for Australia's booming space sector over four years. $1.2 billion has been promised to expand the transition to work employment service for disadvantaged youth. The government will also invest $46.8 million over four years to reboot for young people aged between 15 and 24. All right, well, there we go. That's a little to do with uh, education, skills and technology. As far as the environment's concerned, $800 million deal over 10 years for strategic and scientific research and exploration in Antarctica. $1 $1 billion over nine years to protect the Great Barrier Reef, $63.6 million to the Australia Institute of Marine Science, and tax concessions for farmers who sell Australian carbon credits and biodiversity certificates. And also, the government's promised $50 million over four years to try and stave off uh, you know, a, a possible extinction of our koalas. Billions are being spent, but most of it in uh, in other states, so far as infrastructure is concerned. Tourism, $60 million to bring back international visitors to the regions hardest hit by the pandemic and, of course, by recent flooding. For women, $189 million over five years to fight family, domestic and sexual violence. $104 million to trial electronic monitoring of high-risk and persistent offenders. And finally, in health, well, a 10-year strategic partnership between the federal government, Moderna, and the Victorian government to produce 100 million Australian-made mRNA doses. Also, $58 million to support 800,000 women suffering from endometriosis. That's good news. $81 million for three serious genetic conditions. $51.2 million to fund cancer drugs and development $2 million over two years to fight motor neurone disease and $315 million on extending the National Ice Action Strategy. So there's a few things that we know so far ahead of tomorrow night's federal budget. (laughs) He's laughing, he's having a good time. Good for you, yeah, laugh. Well, this is interesting. I read over the weekend that the family home with, say, four kids has around 20 devices connected to the internet. How does that compare with your joint? More or less? I just find it fascinating. Apparently, most families now have more than 20 devices connected to the internet following years of being stuck in our homes, well, a couple of years due to the pandemic, but it seems we're just getting started as well. With that number tipped to rise to 34 in the next three years. 
from tablets to laptops, game consoles to smart doorbells, families have splashed thousands on gadgets. The staggering figure was revealed in Telsite research, which predicted the average number of connected devices would rise to 34 in Australian households by the year 2025. Telsite Managing Director Fode Fagati said that meant consumers would install another 360 million gadgets. Well, look, everything these days is a smart gadget, really. I mean, you've got things like the family fridge, which now has connectivity to the internet, uh, doorbells, as I mentioned, a whole range of other things that connect online somehow. Look, half of those devices were expected to be smart home gadgets like internet-connected speakers, lights, door locks and appliances, while the other half would be more traditional tech fare such as smartphones, laptops, game consoles and smart televisions. And the investment would come after the pandemic had sped up technology purchases for many households in the past two years. I mean, we've certainly seen unprecedented use of technology, which has spurred a lot of purchases in the tech space. I mean, just looking at the takings of the big tech retailers reflects the boom that we've just gone through. I mean, retail uh, sectors, uh, you know, the big box retailers, JB Hi-Fi, for example, reported record tech sales during the 2021 financial year. And the company's sales in Australian stores grew by more than 10% between January and March 23 this year. Yeah, uh, not bad. Wouldn't have minded having some shares in JB Hi-Fi, hey? Anyway, so many appliances, so many gadgets, all connected to the internet in some way, shape or form in your home. What's your experience? Let me know uh, via the Facebook page, Marcus Paul in the Morning, or if you like, drop me an email, marcus.paul at starterfm.com.au. Well, that about wraps it up for today on this Monday, March 28th. Thank you for listening. Uh, it's been wonderful being on your radio on starterfm.com.au and iHeart, TuneIn radio apps. Don't forget the Prawncast that will be uploaded a little later during the day and you can listen back to previous programs as well on your favourite podcasting platform. Please send your feedback to me, marcus.paul at starterfm.com.au or, of course, continue to follow, if you haven't already, the Facebook page. We put content up there every day and we love getting your feedback, your comments and your shares and your likes. It provides an opportunity for us to then talk about it here on air and in the podcasts. Have a wonderful, safe day. We'll catch up with you again tomorrow live from 7 till 9 around Australia on iHeartRadio and starterfm.com.au. Marcus Paul in the morning. See you tomorrow. Bye. What is the charge?